0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to season three of the Behind the Desk podcast with me, Mark Thomas. This is a podcast where I meet some of the leading tech figures in the insurance and insure tech space, bringing you insight into the views and their views and opinion on the sector, their career journeys, as well as a deeper look into the actual person behind the desk season three is finally here and i'm really excited to bring you a whole range of fantastic technology leadership talent over the next few months from some of the biggest and most recognized insurance brands in the world really excited about this episode episode one of the season i bring you mike samra who is the recently appointed cto at the AA. mike has been with the AA now for around about nine months or so after spending over 10 years working in the London market insurance space as a chief architect and engineer among other positions. We get into a whole range of topics in this episode and it was brilliant to hear the insights of a leader who's just entering a, a new type of insurance market after being in, uh, in, in the London market for, for such a long time. Mike's a really infectious guy with a great personality and a really interesting background which started in software engineering and hands-on technical roles has evolved into architecture and leadership and, and, and he's done a whole load of interesting stuff throughout his career. He gives us some amazing insights into into his career, and and some brilliant snippets of advice are scattered throughout the episode. So I hope you notice them and uh, enjoy them. Uh, Mike's a, a really experienced guy, and and has done loads of stuff that uh, I'm sure our listeners will uh, will really enjoy. So without further delay, let's get behind the desk with Mike Samra. Mike, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for the invite. Appreciate it. Pleasure, Absolutely pleasure. Well, season three of the podcast, we're uh, we're just kicking it off. So uh, thanks for agreeing to be a guest. Look, I- I'm sure a lot of the listeners will already know who you are, um, but uh, it'd be great to get a, a kind of an intro from you. Current situation, what role you're doing, that kind of stuff, and then I'm sure we'll get we'll get much more into it as the podcast uh, goes goes on.
1: Great. Okay, so Mike Samra, I am the CTO of the AA. I joined back in January 2023, so it uh, feels like a lot longer than it is, but it's only been nine months so far. Prior to that, I have been doing technology since I graduated from university, so we're talking, don't know if it shows in my age at all, more, but next year is going to be my 30th year in IT. I graduated in 1994, <clears throat> so um, yeah, So um, we could talk about that yeah, a little bit. Yes, 30 years next year in technology.
0: Great. Well, look. Let's go right back to the start because uh, I, I always like to kind of to hear about the journey. Obviously, um, we've known each other for a while, um, so I, I know a bit about your, your more recent career, but uh, but not the, the the start. So, so tell me about that. How, so, were you were you always into technology when you were young? Like, how, how did you how did you kind of first find the passion for it, and uh, and and how did you kind of execute that into uh, education in a role?
1: Yeah, I think uh, like most people, um, it was a hobby for me. I mean, I started off back in the day when, um, so we're talking. Like I said, you know, I grew up in the, grew up in the 70s and the early 80s. It was not, you know, the the advent of the PC was just coming around. But I kind of started my journey really early. I'm talking, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, seeing a ZX Spectrum for the first time you know, wondering what this thing was, you know, playing those real small games and little sprites and trying to work out how to, you know, write those little bits of, you know, back in the day, he had a, he had a technology magazine with some code snippets that you used to type into the computer and hopefully it, it compiled and you saw something running across the screen. So I mean, we're talking like, you know, back in the early days and then it became a hobby. It became something I just really enjoyed, right? And then, you know, pestered my dad continuously, Get me a, a computer of some type, and we ended up with an Acorn Electron. So, if people don't know that. Go and do a Wikipedia, and you will discover something called an Acorn Electron, and that's how it started. Really, um, and it was a it was just a hobby, it was a passion. I did a lot of sports as well, but um, I realised that this thing called you know computing and programming was something that's quite natural, and I quite I enjoyed mathematics as well. So, as I grew up um, in the early days of hacking about on this little Acorn Electron. And there wasn't any computing at school at the time. Back in those days, there was no GCSE computing. Interestingly enough, I did do a GCSE in typing, but that's a story for another day. That shows my age, right? Um, but when I got to college to do my A levels, um, there was a computer science course there, and that's how it kind of started. So as my first kind of foray into moving away from you know looking at computer books and typing in code to actually being taught some structure around computer science. Um, And so my A-levels were computer science, economics, and mathematics, and that's what I took at A-level. I just found it something naturally that I just got on with, you know, I could just, it was a way to get away from all the activities I was doing outside in in terms of sport, and it was something that just really, I think logic is one of those things that you you can't really teach sometimes, it's just sometimes innately there uh, in people, and I realize this with my children today, you know, I have one one who understands the logic and one who doesn't it's interesting seeing how they tackle a the problem but for me it's always just been looking for solutions to problems and then realizing technology back in the day was the start of that kind of journey for me
0: so did you did you uh once you finished college and uh, an education did you did you go straight into a technology role and was that was that a coding based role was that kind of software engineering was that where you how, how you kind of got into technology initially yeah, that's an interesting one. So um,
1: so I did a computer science A-level, I did well, and then I went to look at the university courses and I chose computer science, actually, at Cardiff University. And that's where I went in, in 91 as a three-year course. Um, so that took me to 94. I came out at the back end of 94, and back in those days, the computer science course was very theoretical. It was very much about the background of computer science. It was a lot of history, it was a lot of logic, it was a lot of maths. You weren't really taught too much about how to program um, in an interesting way. You were taught the basics, but you were doing languages that were teaching languages, not really languages that were going to be used in you know the world at large. So when I kind of got spat out in 94, um, you know the route was in those days, going to join a consultancy company or one of the large companies. And it really wasn't appealing to me. I really wanted to get my hands dirty and I enjoyed coding development. So interestingly enough, um, you know, people talk about, we'll probably get onto this later on, but people talk about career paths or did you know you wanted to be in a certain area. For me, it wasn't really that. For me, it was something I enjoyed and I wanted to carry on doing something I enjoyed. It wasn't really about anything to do with financials or career paths or will I be a CTO by the time I'm, nothing to do with that at all. It was really about, I enjoy this role of programming, I enjoy fixing problems, I enjoy coding and compiling and when it you know when it compiles and it works and it runs there was you know for me that was like I was happy you know it was a real simple binary thing right it worked it, it coded it was exactly what I wanted to do so the first job I took was um, with a very small software house in Southampton that had kind of advertised at the computer science department where I was studying they had a couple of junior roles so interestingly, know like going back to this, um, how do you prepare for an interview? Maybe not the way I did, but I went for this interview down in down in Southampton. It was actually outside Southampton, very small shop, probably ten people. It was a startup, you know. I mean, nowadays, you would call it a startup, I suppose. And and the managing director, you know, he sat me down and he gave me a computer science uh, test. He said, "Okay, can you write the following? You know, it was a problem statement. Can you write this in C?" And I remember having studied C as well as all the other languages, but really had done no preparation for this interview, had just turned up really, it was a completely wet behind the ears, naive 21-year-old at his first job interview, you know, sitting down in front of a computer and I looked at it and my mind just went completely blank and I remember looking at this this assessment and just thinking, oh my god, what did what the last three years teach me? Um so Then I thought, well, there's only one thing I can do, you know, you've got to kind of blag it a little bit so all i did literally I, I wrote the the code in in english i wrote it in pseudo english i actually wrote logic but i wrote it as a bunch of if then out statements but i didn't write it in c i just wrote it in kind of like basic broken if you want to think about it logic english so nothing to do with c at all and and the guy who interviewed me looked at it and he was actually from ibm so a lot of people in in winchester and southampton in those early days they all come from IBM so these you know I was working with some rocket scientists these guys had worked on the Winchester hard drive you know so these guys were were, were fully on and the guy said to me um, well I can teach you C but I can't teach you is logic and he gave me the job right and he completely didn't have to I mean he completely should not have given me that job right based on the other candidates that were probably applying for the same role and so I think that taught me an early lesson about you know Sometimes you need to have this education as well as being street smart, as well as being perceptive to, you know, in some cases what you've been asked to do, right? So if I had not written anything on that piece of paper and just given it blank, because that's actually how my brain was working, I probably wouldn't have had that job, right? And so people talk about sliding doors when I talk about that first job and people in other um, parts of, if I look at their career, you know, they studied hard, they went for that milk round, they went to Deloitte's, so they were... For me, it was just like, well, actually, I want to do some programming. This company's offering me some programming. Um, I got to the interview, completely flunked the interview, got the job. But what I did learn in those uh, first six months, I learned probably three years worth of computing in six months because they threw me right in the deep end. I was working with some very good software engineers, top of the range developers from you know IBM. We were building software. I learned how to program in Windows, um 3.1 back in the day c i learned how to do that very quickly i was working crazy hours but i would say within the first six months of working down there i probably had about two to three years worth of experience under my belt you know so going back to those life lessons sometimes you don't know what it's going to be until you turn up and just take a risk you know because i didn't go for that traditional large company career i went to this ten man startup outfit in the middle of nowhere. Um, but um, I I felt there was something there and that was that was my first six months so the first six months of complete baptism of fire and I look at that experience and think about what if I hadn't taken that job what if I had joined another company I'm sure it would have been fine right people look back and look at um, sliding door moments I remember all my uh, cohort of uh, graduates going why why have you gone why did you go and join one of these large companies I remember thinking well one it's interesting two it's a bit of a risk three i really want to this software house is really small i thought i'm going to get a lot of attention and it worked it completely worked in those six months i was i was at the top of my game in terms of coding which i hadn't done anything at university
0: yeah yeah i think it's a really interesting point actually you you speak to obviously in my line of work you speak to a lot of different people who uh, and, and there's some people that really want that really structured um comfort of being at a big company that's very well set out you know exactly what the next two or three years are going to look like and then there's some people that just want to kind of get really get into it and uh and, and there's two different ways of learning isn't there like and you, you you can uh you can learn different different types of approach different ways and work for different people so it's uh how long did you work for that business did you did it did the startup succeed was it well did it yeah work? It, it was
1: good it was good it was very good actually it was uh they were building software, um, Very interesting software. I mean, I learned, the stuff I learned there, to be honest, has has kind of stood me in really good stead. So I learned all about databases, development, you know, working with GUIs, working with user experience, doing APIs, integration. We were doing all that stuff back in the day, right? Um, And it also taught me C, which was a really powerful language back in the day, and the Windows 3.1. So after six months, I didn't want to be in kind of Southampton. Um, I kind of wanted to get to London, right? That was my aim. I wasn't from London. But I always knew that I wanted to go to the bright lights in the big city. Um, so my aim was to get into London. But with my six months experience, and that I probably had about, like I said, two years worth of development experience, I kind of felt almost confident enough now to go and get a, a better job that was paying a lot more. Because I was literally, I, mean, I don't even want to go into numbers and figures, but the salary that I got on that first role was probably 50% less than the graduate you know, starting salaries. Okay. so i was i was way below but i just knew that the risk of taking it and what i was going to learn was worth it I wasn't even thinking about the money you know what i mean it goes back to the days of i wasn't chasing uh, the finances i was chasing the experience um and that and that after that six months i applied to a couple of roles in the city and i did end up joining a consultancy company um actually in Farndon, um, in clark and well green really small company again that took a chance on me and uh, I arrived again straight to London. Again, it kind of one of those experiences. I came to London pre kind of mobile phones, right? People think, but well, how did you contact people back in the day? So I arrived in London. I knew someone who I had studied with and who I lived in. Uh, we, lived, we shared a house together in our last year and I kind of somehow managed to land up six weeks sleeping on her sofa while I had a job working for this consultancy company uh, and an interesting story. So I arrived first day at this consultancy company um, after coming to live uh, with uh, you know this, uh, this, this, this person I knew from university, sleeping on her sofa, I ended up first day going to this office all dressed up really smart thinking, you know, this is where it's going to be. And the guy said, you know, typical consultancy, so he goes, you're never going to see these offices again. You're going to be on client site. And he put me in a black cab he gave me some money and he sent me off to the foreign office. And I landed up at Whitehall working for um, the Under Permanent secretary's Department, uh, which is interesting. Um, and I spent two two and a bit years um, working literally on top secret projects I can't really talk about. But interesting enough, again, no real plan. Just kind of went for the role, went for the kind of uh, experience, and ended up working uh, behind secret doors for almost two years. Um, interesting enough.
0: Yeah. 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 Great. As you do. So- what was the evolution then? So, so you, you, you I, I guess you, you stay. Did you stick around doing doing kind of hands-on engineering, coding for for a while? Was that was that a kind of a, a significant period of your career before you uh, evolved into more senior kind of leadership type roles?
1: Yeah, I mean, like I said, no real plan, right? So I enjoyed development. I enjoyed coding ended up at a foreign office doing like i said two years worth of uh consultancy uh i was coding hands-on writing low level c on solaris aix unix boxes you know very much an engineer at heart and then how i progressed i suppose was i still enjoyed writing code and then the next role working for a consultancy, you never know where you're going to end up right so um after that two years came to an end Um, again going back to not quite knowing what the next role was going to be but kind of going for the risk or taking the risk they landed a new contract working for bass taverns actually in birmingham a very large mainframe replacement type project and uh, i i went back to the office the one i saw on that first day and the guy said you're never going to see this office again anyway i saw it for the second time in two years i I went back and uh, this time they said to me "Uh, here's a credit card um Here's here's, here's a set of keys for a company car. Here's an address. And I went, where now? And they went, Birmingham. And I went, oh, great. So I drove all the way to Birmingham. uh, And when I got there, the um, the engagement leader took me to one side and said, well, we've hired you in, Mike. You're the Oracle DBA. I went, what's Oracle and what's DBA? And she went, well, there's the book. We've just sold you in. Typical consultancy, you know, um, sink or swim, uh, you know, totally just faking it till you make it, total scenario. I had a week to learn how to be an Oracle DBA, and I, I landed up on this massive mainframe project, uh, rebuilding a Unisys mainframe into, into a whole new platform, and that was the Oracle DBA. So going back to kind of like, you know, sometimes, you know, not not saying being risky, but just willing to learn and just willing to put myself out there, I suddenly went from being um, a Windows developer to a Unix developer building you know software for a foreign office. I was now writing you know, DBA uh, oracle scripts for uh, Bass Taverns. Um, And at the same time, I was learning this new language called Forte, which people probably haven't heard of, but if you go and Google it, it's the precursor to Java. Um, It's what Sun actually then took and made into Java, but it was a pure OO language. Um, And then I spent uh, another couple of years doing that till about 98. So this is probably four years into my career now. So I graduated in 94. By the time I got to 98, I've probably gone through quite a few technologies, quite a few different roles. I've still coding, I've still developing, I've still hands-on. And it's probably about that point, um end of 98, I realized um I'd kind of had this flight in London, but I was never in London. I was always now living in a hotel and I thought okay, it's time to get back to London type scenario. And at that point in 98, if you think about 98, um you're almost uh, pre-dot-com just about that time. And I knew that the the world was moving uh, into a certain direction, and this thing was called the web <laughs> back in the day. And I thought, right, I want to get back into into the city. So uh, I joined very, very, for a very short period of time. But I left a consultancy company because I didn't want to be travelling around anymore. And I ended up working for the Financial Times for the FT um, up in Old Street actually. Um, and that's probably the first time where I started to think about maybe not money or finances, but certainly about career because then. I was sitting next to a whole bunch of uh, contractors and I didn't know what the word contractor meant back in the day but I was a permanent employee sitting next to a contractor and I was doing the same job as my contractor friend who's getting paid four times as much and I remember thinking one minute, how does how does that actually work? Um, you know, I'm getting paid X amount and you're getting paid four times and you're doing exactly the same job, probably working less hours um, so I did six months on that and then I decided right, I'm going to try this contracting game Um, and that was it and that was quite a hard thing to do actually to go from permanent to contract quite early on because the hardest thing is is be a contractor you kind of have to be available monday right so you kind of have to quit your job not knowing that you've got another job coming but i think you need to have confidence in your skills right and i knew back in 98 the skills i had were going to be very solid in the marketplace i did a bit of research so i kind of quit the ft I went looking for a contract I had four weeks because obviously that was my notice period so I had to get a job in four weeks otherwise you know things are going to be in trouble and I did I landed a contract within that period and so I became that you know they had that terminology you know Friday Friday night Monday morning same job same role but now you're a contractor that's kind of what I did I ended up contracting for about four or five years through the dot-com period but still developing
0: still very hands-on so so what, um, so what what was the period there? So, it, so by this point, you've you've obviously done a significant stint of being kind of hands on coding. I guess, you did contracting for a while. What was the what was the first kind of role or, or thought that made you start thinking you wanted a bit more than being just just coding? Because um, I know obviously your career was was kind of you went up through that architecture route. What 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 was that kind of first step into that role? Um, and, and, and I guess more so, what 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 made you start thinking that you wanted to do something bigger? Was it was it a, did it did you start to take a, a an active career move to do that then, or was that just something that just evolved naturally?
1: Yeah, good question. So I, probably I would say um, I got to the end of two thousand and three. So I've been contracting for five years, and contracting is great for, for different people for different reasons. Okay, um, sometimes you just want to hone down on a skill set, right? Sometimes you just want to do more of the same and you know it's uh, it's going to be a known quantity and, you know, and what you have to do and what you're asked to do is exactly what you can do, right? So you're not really being, sometimes not, it's quite an easy option in a weird way, right, contracting. But I got to the end of 2003 and I wanted to do more. I, I, development was now getting to the point where other people were getting quicker. I and mean, I've been doing it for nine years by this point, right? Development, right? Coding, hands-on. And as I was hiring other developers in my roles, I started to realize that they were getting better quicker than me they were smarter than me they were more passionate than me and I thought okay well how do I evolve how do I move on from development I mean where do I go and so that's when I started to think about almost becoming a, a leader of people and that was only like maybe one or two people but moving to a team lead moving to a development manager so I started to make changes even as I was as I was contracting my role changed so by the time I got to the end of 2003 I was working for Hiscox Insurance at the time, building one of the first insurance broker portals, actually, um, in the city. Um, I, by the time I left that role, I was managing a team of developers. So I was kind of moving away now from being more hands-on, I suppose in some respects, leading a team, but also getting closer to the business, and that's where I started to change my role. As I started to talk to the business partners and the people who are actually making business decisions, I started to... I had interest and thought, actually, I really really quite enjoy hearing about the business problem before I get to the technology solution. And before that, I was a note taker, okay? People were telling me, build this system, build it like this. So my kind of input and my creativity was really finding the technical solution. As I started to work with the business, I started to realize I could influence the way they were thinking around the business problem, because I already had the solution in my back pocket. Right, so coming from that technical background and being coding and having written code and having seen it compile, I knew I could always find a solution. But now I can make it, I suppose, a bit more cohesive by getting closer to the business. Right, so it started to change about 2003, 2004, and then the, the kind of the big change was um, going back to risk taking. I took a year off. At that point, I quit. I quit. Quit London. It'd been 10 years of working. Uh, I'd been married. I got married in that in that time. And I've been working non-stop since I graduated, right? So literally came out of university and I've been working non-stop. That it's now it's 2003. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I've suddenly hit 30. What the hell happened to my life, right? So I said to the wife at the time, right, let's do it. Let's just quit. Let's just take a year off and take a sabbatical. And she was like, you must be nuts because she had a really good job at HSBC, investment banking. We had a lovely flat in London. We had a car. We had all the trappings of material. You know, it was all good. And I said, well time's gone really quickly and i can realize that you know that if i don't take a break now suddenly i'm going to hit 40 then 50 and wonder what happened to to my my life and so i had an epiphany so we, so we took a year out and i just she quit work i quit work and we went and did and i won't bore you 16 countries six continents 22 flights so whizzed around the world saw saw everything i wanted to see knocked off you know 30 things off on bucket list um and I landed back in the country literally a year to the date in 2004, and I realised I loved IT. Um, <laughs> I came back and I realised it's exactly where I want to be. Um, I enjoy technology. I'm not going to become something else on my year away. Um, and interestingly enough, I've realised having been away for a year, I really enjoyed, in a weird way, I really enjoyed having um, routine. I really quite enjoyed going to work. I quite enjoyed having knowing where my next, you know, breakfast was going to come from spending a year traveling was really difficult and I realized that I had done it but actually and now I knew exactly what I wanted to do so that was probably the turning point so when I came back I was like right now I know what I want to do it's technology and I do want to start to move up maybe not a career ladder but I certainly want to move up in terms of my skill set so coding was I was done with right I thought right I'm done with development what I want to move into now is managing teams and that's when I joined a consultancy company in 2004 um, and they're the ones who first said to me during the interview process you act and behave like an architect I never heard that word before okay and I was like hmm. it's like 2004 when I was like architect and they, you know for me that was a terminology with building houses okay I was not really used to that concept of architect within software or computing and he went, uh, and the interview process was, yeah, but your behavior and the way you ask the questions and the way that you act and the way that you respond, you're an architect. And I went, sounds great. If you're going to pay me all money because my role is an architect, I'll take the architect role. And that's what happened in 2004. And as I started to move through that company, I started to understand what architecture really meant, right, in terms of solution architecture, and then the various elements of architecture, infrastructure, security. You can put everything, you know, with an architect, um, you know, suffix. If you think about user experience, architecture, database architecture, suddenly I was now an architect and then kind of what it meant was I was finding solutions to problems without just jumping to the solution. And I, and I did that for three years and that's probably when I started. That's when I changed from a developer to a team leader to a development manager. And by the end of 2007, I was full on solution architect.
0: So, so yeah, I mean that's a that's a really interesting because I, I think you tend to see different uh routes and that's that's a fairly kind of atypical um route. You met, you mentioned a little bit there about Hiscox. So was Hiscox your first foray into the insurance space or although it was kind of what like one 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 client a, a amongst a, a range in this in this role. So th- th- did you what once you left that role did w- w- did you then because it it seems like you then went into more into industry based roles rather than consulting type stuff. So was that again was was that a conscious decision to, to to do that? Did you did you proactively move want to move into insurance space or did you just kind of land there by accident and have stuck there as I'm not yeah I'm not sure how many people consciously move
1: into insurance within the <laughs> no. technology space. Um, I would say I, I kind of uh, that contract role brought me into insurance space. And for me, it was another it was another um, problem statement, right? It was like, you know, it was an area that needed to be dragged up by its socks. Having worked in other industries, you know, because having worked during the dot-com era, I worked for a lot of dot-com startups, right? So they were just doing things very fast, very quickly, and suddenly moving to insurance, moving to Hiscox. Actually, Hiscox, to be fair, was pretty fast forward moving back in. Even now, I think, you know, they, they took a lot of risks in a lot of areas that other companies that were a bit larger probably couldn't have done. So it was a really good start for me. And so I brought Hiscox back in as a client, actually, to the consultancy company that I worked for. And I started to hone in on insurance during that period of time. And I started to understand it more, started to understand the business more. And I suppose this is the way you needed to change. So I need to understand the business, the capability of what insurance was, right? Start to understand you know, the value streams of what insurance does. Start to understand the business language, the terminology, because that's where you start becoming more effective as a as a business as a technical leader, right? And so when I left the consultancy company in 2007, I actually joined RSA. So I started then going deeply into insurance, right? And that's probably when um, I suddenly realised that having a domain experience of a certain area was probably a good focus area now. Because previously to that, like I said, I'd done. A startup company doing xyz I worked for a foreign office which was just kind of you know I'd done retail um, hadn't done banking at that point but I'd done insurance and then another insurance gig so suddenly I had two insurance gigs in a row I suddenly thought maybe this is an area I should focus on right and that's probably what I started doing in 2008 and that's when I landed at RSA and actually that was a contract again um, interestingly enough when I left and this goes back to if I look at my career I've kind of gone permanent contract permanent contract permanent contract permanent and people have asked you know why and people have even said you know is that a good thing is that a bad thing for your cv what does that mean and and i I think for me i always wanted to be in a permanent role and the reason why i did contracts was normally as i said earlier was to hone down on a particular skill set right because when you do contract you have to be the best at what you do because they're hiring you just for that particular expertise right um, and so when I did contracting, it was normally just to really knuckle down in certain areas. So when I joined RSA, that was also the time where I started to become a more of a enterprise architect versus just a solution architect. And so joining RSA um, meant I had to do that for like two and a half years. When I was at the consultancy company, you're sometimes doing a lot of different things, project management, business analysis, deals, engagements. And that variety is great. I really enjoyed it. But I realized I quite enjoyed solutioning and architecture. And that's the reason why I left the consultancy company, because I wasn't really doing that maybe, you know, as many hours of the week that I wanted to do. So I thought at that point, right, how do I hone down on this thing called enterprise architecture um, and insurance? And that's when the RSA contract came up. And I spent two and a half years there working on some very key platforms. Again, I suppose that's how the transition went from solution to enterprise, right? the enterprise contract allowed me to focus on all those skill sets and understand the good and bad around enterprise architecture and that's a whole different topic for another day about how that has also changed during my time right but that was probably but yeah so by the end of 2010 you know i was fully now an enterprise architect you know looking at large problems large kind of enterprise functions trying to work out again with the business it's for, I'll, I'll go back to this again is that linkage to the business became really strong, and became really apparent that if you want to have some value at the table, you really need to understand where the business was going. Right. So I started working harder on business architecture as well.
0: Yeah, you mean I think that yeah, that's that's uh, interesting. We would we'll definitely come back to that in a second. So so. Uh... You know, obviously, that then you uh, to not to jump too far ahead, but the, you, you, I know, you've obviously had a, a, a kind of a 10, 12 year stint in uh, in the insurance space. Since then, with a little for, foray out into into working at Barclays, a long, long stint at Travelers and Axis, which has kind of led you now to to the the most recent role. At, at the AA, so uh, you know, I, I know you and I have spoken about this uh, previously about the the kind of the job title, but I mean, the first official CTO role. Although uh, I'm, I'm sure some of the other roles that you've had, kind of chief architecture roles, have been been similar. But t- talk us through what, why you made that move, because obviously you you spent a lot a lot of the the last kind of ten years in. Uh, the London market insurance space, um, the AA obviously so- something slightly different as uh, I'm sure most people will will, will be aware, certainly people are listening in the UK. So so talk, talk us through kind of what that role is, what uh, how you found that, what way do you move out of kind of more London market type stuff into into that space?
1: Yeah, I, you know, sometimes it goes back to that. Is there a career plan or is there just opportunity that you see um, that comes knocking at your door? I would say it's a bit of both. The The insurance years, as I would say, probably from RSA actually 2008 to about 2000, well, last year, probably about 14 years. I loved insurance. I loved it. I love working in insurance. It was a great sector to work in. And I remember always having a conversation with my wife about there could be easier roles elsewhere. And What I mean by easier roles is it's a hard area to work in when there are so many barriers to change. Where there are so many barriers to acceptance of new technology, for example, right? Talks about London markets. How many incarnations have I been through in that Lloyd's market of trying to digitise it? You know what I mean? And I would always come home at the end of each year thinking, sure, there must be an easier role somewhere else where they really appreciate technology, right? Where they really want me to be at the table, versus you know having had conversations with senior underwriters. He said to me, Mike, if it all goes wrong, technology. It's great I get to use my Mont Blanc again you know what I mean that's the type of conversations I would have with senior underwriters who really did not want technology invading their space right and every year I would come home and say to the wife surely there could be some industry that really wants me in technology but I'm not going to give up on this thing called insurance right I'm not going to give up they are going to accept technology and they are going to accept that change is a good thing and that's what kept me in I think insurance the London market specifically A lot longer because I always knew that, you know, if they hadn't seen the light, it was my job (laughs) to make them see the light that they needed technology changes and they couldn't carry on working the way they were working. And London market specifically, we all know about how hard it has been to change uh, culture. And then that thing came along called, you know, COVID. (laughs) (laughs) So every CIO, every CTO, every COO had failed miserably for the last twenty years, and then this thing called COVID came along. Ironically, it starts with a C, but it managed to change everyone's perception of technology and digital, right? But this is one of the reasons why I stayed within insurance during those periods of time. But I really enjoyed it, and then moving to the AA, um, for me, again goes back to how I made my choices of roles. To be honest, normally, you know, the roles weren't planned. I don't think I've ever had a plan if someone had said to me back in 1994 what's your plan and where are you going to be I, I really would not, not have an idea of where I was going to go but what I did know I always took it for a reason of it'd be something risky as in terms of I'll learn something because if I'm not going to learn then why bother carrying on right if you're not going to push yourself outside your um, comfort zone a little bit and and start learning um, new things and you know why bother right you just more than become a contractor right ironically you can you know you can just focus on one particular segment and you're a gun for hire and you're just going to do the same thing and it's going to be fine and you're going to get paid well i kind of done that what i wanted to do was just keep learning right keep expanding um, my skill set and that's not technology that's leadership right that's understanding how to work with different people different circumstances different industries so the aa one came came about and again um, my i think my last three or four roles it's about 2011 probably have all come through people I know, so none of them have come through. um, I suppose the open marketplace in some respects. So, but here's a life lesson of you know you never know who you're going to meet on the way up, but you probably meet them on the way down. It doesn't mean you need to be nice to everybody. Get me wrong. It just means that you need to be credible, right? You need to have you need to have left a good mark when you have those conversations, right? So they remember who you are, what you actually delivered. So I think it's important. The lesson, if I was going to tell people now, about you know, learn technology, learn how to be you know, book smart, people smart, street smart. There's many types of smart, I believe, um, and I need to you need to focus on all of those, right? So being quite well rounded is certainly an important attribute I've had to use over the years.
0: Yeah. So um, yeah. So, so the so the AA role now. let's So tell us a bit about what that uh, what that role entails. It's this is CTO role. What's in the remit? What's kind of on the agenda for you at the moment? Um, for what you can talk about? What's the the kind of? I guess what 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 are you learning now?
1: Yes, yeah, a lot. So this is the first time I've worked for a private equity backed company. So that's yeah. really interesting. So the previous companies have been large, you know, conglomerates. They've been large corporates. You know, Nasdaq listed. FTSE, large shareholder kind of uh, presence in the background, uh, and now there are two private equity companies that own us. Um, and it's like I think my analogy to this is um, it's like you know you start playing the piano and someone sets the metronome really quick. Okay, so now it's the same job, it's the same role, but now it's three times as quick, right? In terms of decision making, right? You know, you know, and and this goes back to architecture and how it's had to change. Architecture has predominantly being quite um, I would say uh, not passive but sometimes back office and a bit slow and a bit slow to react and a bit slow to change and a bit slow to make decisions and sometimes sits on the fence a little bit too much and there's pros and cons and there's you know presentations about good and bad etc etc that kind of goes out the window when you join a a PE back company You kind of do all of that very quickly, very rapidly, but you've got to make a decision uh, and it has to be a good one, right? And and the due diligence you're doing has to be at super fast pace. So joining the AA, very aggressive um, agenda in terms of where we want to go, where we want to be, a good strategy is in place, great leadership team. The reason I joined, to be honest, sometimes you join for the people that you know that you're going to go with, right? And that's the risk, right? The risk is, you know, it's not the industry, it's normally who are you who are you going to be working with who are your mentors going to be right who's going to be looking out for you who's got your back those are really important things when you start moving to a leadership role because you don't want to be the only voice you know shouting in a certain direction because that can become very lonely and you can suddenly become very sidelined and very marginalized very quickly so it's really important that when you think about a leadership role you kind of think you need to start thinking about who you're going to be working with because you can't do it by yourself okay it's as simple as that um, and at the AA, it's a great leadership team. I love it. Right? It's so so diverse as well, and that's really important. Diversity of thought, diversity of background, diversity of the way they work, but a common shared interest, right? Shared objective. That's really important, and that's what's exciting about the AA at the moment.
0: Yeah. So what's the what's the big stuff uh, that's kind of on your agenda at the moment? What's the what's kind of right in front and center for you over the next uh well for the last nine months since you joined but but going into next year yeah um probably goes back to
1: the other question i didn't answer this is how does the cto role work here And i think it's quite important so seeing this the cto role has i think many diverse you know if you want to think about it, responsibilities in different organizations right and each organization i think cto role could be completely different depending on the type of organization and the size of the organization and their maturity, right? If you join us, if you're a CTO for a very small startup, you'll be hands-on, you'll be coding, right? You're an engineering CTO, right? And that's what they need at that time of their journey. From the A.A.'s perspective, they've been around since, you know, 1905, right? It's a different type of CTO. The challenges I face here are really about the the nature of the organization has been they have had individual business units, right? So you have roadside you see the yellow van on the road that's one operation you have insurance you have the things like driving schools you have things like AA road signs there's a whole bunch of these um, I suppose individual business units that were in the AA and they've all had their own different technology stacks they've had their own investment leadership their own objectives and so my role at the moment has been a little bit like putting my arms around everything within that has the AA badge and trying to understand, you know, what's good, what's bad. And it's a very classic kind of, you know, architecture type of analysis, right? You know, where are we? What have we done that's, you know, going to be carried on? What do we need to do, you know, stop, what do we need to do more of? start to put down a technology strategy that kind of shows, you know, we have a plan about our investments going forward. And that's the that's the bit I'm be focusing on. So in terms of execution and delivery, I work very closely with the CIO here. So it's a, it's a different role. So again, it goes back into different organizations I've seen have been structured in different ways. And I'm working in totally in hand-in-hand with CIO, the CDO, and then the CDAO, which is a data analytics officer. So all four of us work closely together. They own execution and delivery, and I'm looking after technology, strategy, and investments for all of their areas, just to make sure it's a holistic approach to, I suppose, the way that we move forward, right? And those are there are challenges in that, as you can tell and there's also advantages in that and so you know the key is to be pragmatic as we go through this
0: journey yeah sounds really interesting um so i, I guess just moving on to to talk a bit more generally then um i mean obviously you've moved slightly out of the london market and that made maybe that's giving you a bit of perspective seeing from a, a different uh viewpoint but it'd be interesting to get your your kind of view on 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 where you see the insurance market not not just the london market but insurance in general at 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 the moment um what you think the the kind of big stuff that's going to happen over the next couple of years, or, or even more so, has to happen, and how you see that kind of evolving? It, it, I mean, I, I, has has being outside the sector for a year or so now g- given you some perspective on that kind of thing? Or uh, what? What? What are your thoughts?
1: I still keep uh, tabs on it. I have a lot of people in the industry. Still get invited to a lot of events. So I'm still I'm still keeping an active eye on what's happening in the in London markets. I think we're in a really good place at them. I think, you know, like I said, pre-COVID, I was getting a little bit tired of insurance, right? It wasn't moving, things were slow. It was hard to get the technology agenda, right? It wasn't really at people's uh, forefront of mind. And then, you know, post-COVID with what we've had to do, working from home, using digital technologies a lot more, I feel like maybe now we're getting a foothold to the right table. My, My previous issue probably was, the technology representation at the senior leadership table wasn't really there. Okay. We were still, you know, within certainly within certain London market areas, we were certainly still note takers. Okay. We want to do a certain thing oh, have we asked technology? It was one of those afterthoughts, right? And I think the exciting bit now, especially for people who are fully in the London markets technology area, is making sure that your presence is known and that you start bringing some value to the table right in those conversations and that, and you get to the heart of those conversations and not just become asked afterwards oh did we oh did we talk to IT about this by the way which is what it used to be right it used to be a whole much a uh, whole bunch about you know insurance products and different types of uh go to market strategies and then it was like oh maybe we need technology as well so I'm hoping now and I'm excited that with the whole insure tech, uh, what's been happening with AI is a whole massive topic. Again, we could talk for hours on that one, um, and the technology that's coming in. I, I believe that if it's going the right direction, finally, I you feel know, like finally there's hope for the insurance market. Um, and here's one of the last areas. Right, when I look around and I look at all the other industries that have been resistant to change, you know, feel finally the insurance market is starting to accept the technology as being a good thing versus it being I don't know maybe in the past an inhibitor
0: right and how have you found that as well at the AA because obviously the, it is still an insurance business I know there's different strands to that that business as well but did did you find that the the, the kind of adoption of technology and I guess the kind of more open-minded viewpoint on it but did, did you did you did you find that that was a drastic difference or, or was or are they actually experienced in different challenges just in a different way?
1: I would say in pockets, I would say in some areas, you know, technology is totally an enabler to doing business, right? Uh, And in some areas it has been, you know, it's not always a perfect world. It has been more of a, maybe a bit more behind the scenes. So, you know, we're doing something and we have technology and it hasn't been seen as, as enabling new business channels or business products or services, right? Um, and there's a maturity in in, in that uh, in in the thinking, and we're, and we're getting there. So I would say that you know the, the worst thing is when you join an organization is that you know the, the remit and the job description is all about you know technology and the need for technology and the need for this, and then you get on get on board and they go, actually, you know, we kind of yeah, just keep the lights on, right? And you're like, I don't I don't want to keep the lights on. I want to change the organization. I want to be part of that transformation journey, right? And so. Here it feels that you know technology is seen as an enabler to uh, achieve the goals and the objectives that we need to do at the AA. So for me, that's
0: exciting. You know, it feels like I'm in the right place. Yeah, yeah, great. So I, I guess I just wanted to move on like the one of the bits uh, uh, I, I actually noticed, Dan, when you were talking earlier is that that uh, there was that transition at some point in your in your career where you started thinking not just about the technology. And, and kind of writing code and the mechanics of, 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 of what that would look like, but actually thinking about the business, which which to me, um, again, without, without kind of answering the question myself, it, it, I, I think that, that often seems to be the kind of transitional period between someone that goes into leadership or, or an architecture, enterprise architecture type role. And someone that stays coding. The, the, the people that stay coding that just love doing that. They don't really want to think about the business. And someone like yourself who who kind of transitions into that role. So that that that's obviously a a kind of a, a seminal moment where where people that that happens. But I'd be interested to kind of hear from you on any kind of any advice that you would give people who are kind of on that journey or or are in a pure technical role at the moment. What's your kind of advice on how to make that transition? Because for me, I think that is one of the hardest things that people have early in their career is one figuring out whether they actually want to do that kind of leadership role. Whether they want to stay doing the the, the hands on stuff and just stick to that and be be great at that. And if they do, how to kind of transition to that? What 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 are your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's a
1: tough one. I mean, I have met some great engineers I mean I go back to that first job in 94 and one of the guys who was developing code with me as a graduate still developing code still writes code every day right and he's been doing it for 30 years and he's brilliant he's a brilliant engineer and it doesn't mean he's of less value totally right he's just he's realized that that was his goal and he's still a you know his his title is still a developer right senior developer maybe but he's happy right he wakes up he goes to he goes does his day job and he's exactly where he wants to be I think it's a personal journey, right? So, you know, not everybody will want to become a CTO or a CIO or a CDO. Okay. And that's okay. Right. Otherwise it'd be very crowded at the top. Right. It, it's okay not to, not to do that. And that doesn't mean you're a, a failure or you haven't achieved. Right. And that's the thing, that's the first thing it really is about for me, it's about curiosity, right? I was always curious as to those types of roles and i was always curious as to what it was to be or play that role and so through the years i've had mentors people i've worked with who have played that role and i've looked at them and i've gone how do they behave are those behaviours behaviours i want to take upon myself are those behaviours i should be exhibiting more right um can i learn is that an area i'm interested in now and that's the thing that's how it evolved right so as i started to work with ctos and cios and chief architects and people of leadership, CFOs, CEOs, all those people, having that audience for those people, you either start saying, "Oh, actually, yeah, I, I think I can play that role," because you're never going to be able to play the role until you're given the role. Okay, this is the this is the thing. This is the hard thing from the transition period. Right, is catch twenty two. Okay, right, you apply for a CTO role. You've never been a CTO. Normally, the response is, "Oh, we're looking for a CTO." you're like okay well how do i become a cto if you're not a cto right and it's it's and i don't have an answer to that because it kind of goes back into look at the people around you who are playing that role start to understand what it is to, take, to be that role look at yourself critically you know, look in the mirror and go okay i haven't got close enough to the business i don't understand the finances for example right things like that get into the finances, start understanding the way the organisation ticks. Um, understand everything about the business. Understand everything about the operations. Start to be curious about every part of the architecture. Right? If you're if you're an infrastructure architect, start to understand about application architecture. Start to understand about software architecture, cloud architecture. Net, you know, those are all the things that I've had to explore. I started off, and I kind of think architects or CTOs, they either start off in a couple of ways. They either start off from a software and a top of the stack downwards or they start off at the bottom and they've been networking and infrastructure and they've kind of moved up the stack okay especially in the CTO role CIO is very different because they come from various backgrounds I've I've realized over the many years and they're sometimes not even technology right and that's sometimes not a bad thing in those types of roles but certainly for the CTO role you kind of come come with it from either the top or the bottom and I came from the top right I was writing software I was writing code I never really understood too much about infrastructure or servers or networks but I had to learn it okay I had to get into those stacks um, not to the point where I was the expert and I think this is the other thing that people kind of make a mistake you don't need to be the expert in all those areas but you certainly need to know how they tick and you certainly need to know how they all work and how they interlock and you've got to appreciate them right I don't understand it but I can hold my own to a certain point and at a certain point you put your hands up and go actually I, but I also know then who to bring in okay And and I think that's the point around moving or transitioning is that you've got to be, you've got to start to be a bit more rounded in all your skills within within technology, right? Especially um, for I think the the CTO in the new era, or even the chief architect in the new era, even a CIO, you've got to be able to you know hold an audience, tell a story, read the audience, know when to shut up, know when to talk, you know clear, you know, get through the crap and just get to the message quickly. Right. And sometimes, you know, you just need to know who you're presenting to. I think all those skills you can't, you, you you don't, you know, you, you can't read about those. You kinda of have to go out there and make a few big mistakes. Okay. You need to go and sit in a couple of meetings and put your, you know, put your size elevens in your mouth and accidentally say something and realize maybe you shouldn't have said that. But how are you gonna learn? Right. It's what you say, you don't really know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Right. And we've all made those mistakes and I believe that as I look around my organization now, I'm kind of trying to bring up the next set of leadership, right? So for them, sometimes it's just about being there and listening, right? So as you're a chief architect and you want to be a CTO, make sure that you're with that CTO, like make sure you get to those meetings, even if you're just listening, right? But if somebody does ask you something, make sure you say something useful, right? Because that's your opportunity, right? Don't, you know, I always look around the table at meetings and I always kind of wonder who uh, you know, who are the people that are just here for a ride and who are the ones that are gonna lead the meeting. And I always say to my team that if you're gonna go into these meetings, you know, if you could start with something that will start the conversation and they're reading from your solution architecture paper or from your PowerPoint presentation, then you're kind of leading from the front a little bit rather than sitting back. So you kind of need to get in there, right? And if you can do that then you start to own the audience, and then people will invite you back again, right? Because I always have that conversation of, oh, I, I wasn't invited to that meeting. And I'm like, there's probably a reason why, because they invited you last time, and maybe you didn't add any value. So next time you're in that meeting, I'm not saying you need to be jumping around, but you need to be thinking about how you can add a certain amount of value to that meeting. Otherwise, why you know, why, why bother turning up, right? And I think that's the transition, right? you got to start thinking a little bit around outside the box a little bit
0: yeah i mean i really i really like that thing you you said be curious i think that's it that's a that's a great piece of advice and the, the bit that i wrote down there which i think is a, is actually a piece of advice you've probably given throughout this whole of this podcast maybe maybe may realizing maybe not realizing is just be prepared like and be prepared to get to get involved so i think but what, what i what i take from every every facet of your career is that uh there was always a point where you could get thrown in the deep end or try something new, whether it be the Oracle becoming an Oracle D B A overnight or or kind of going and and, and venturing into a, a kind of a smaller role, which might not necessarily be the, the the best one on paper but gives you some learning. Do you know what I mean? And be be prepared to say something in a in a meeting. Do you know what I mean? always be prepared to kind of put your head above the parapet and and, and try try something new, I think is uh a lot and if you've okay. had i would be curious you, you you're in a good space i would i would say um you know
1: as i've led teams over the years and you always get to that end of year rating conversation and someone always says you know i was a i was a walking on water uh one for example if you know if you, you're grading is one is the highest and i kind of always say well okay let's let's reset expectation a little bit you're a three okay and then conversation starts with no, no, but I did, you know, blah blah. And I go, okay, but well, if you read your job description, that means you're meeting expectation, okay, and that's good, right? So to get a three in my team is you've done really well, okay. So that means you've turned up, you've done your job, you read your job description, and you delivered. delivered that project quicker, faster, smarter than everybody else. But actually, that's still that's just your job still, okay. So you're you're a three. I've had these tough conversations over the years and I've had lots of arguments and people who work in my team going but I should be a two because I, I'm like okay well what else did you do okay what else did you volunteer for did you do any uh, round tables did you do any podcasts like this did you go out there and do an industry event did you go and do some culture changes did you mentor somebody oh it wasn't in my job description okay well then you're a three yeah, that's a three that's a solid three and that's a good three so in my organization if you get a three you've done well if you get a two then you know it goes back to that kind of cheesy quote you know don't ask what you know you can do for your country blah 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 you know it's that type of scenario it's like well what have you done for me right and I haven't asked for right and what have you seen and what have you improved that maybe was outside of the remit and I think that's really important so it's really important I think nowadays And I'm not saying being cliched or being you know teacher's pet I'm not saying no what I'm saying is if you see something that's not working stop moaning about it go and fix it right go and get out there and I've done that all the time right and that's part of just learning and reading and just putting yourself out there just a little bit more and, and sometimes that's nature and nurture right sometimes you're confident about things you know it and there are things sometimes where just put your hand up and just take something because I've got a thousand things on my backlog that I have to do I hate having to tell people to go and do things Especially when it's blatantly obvious, right? I would love it if someone would come up to me and go, oh, "I see that you're struggling with X. I'll tell you what, should I take it away for you? You're in. You're a two, okay? Yeah, moving
0: up to a two. <laughs> yeah, right. Spot on, great. Well, look, look, we're coming towards the end now. So, uh, and I, look, I always end the podcast with uh, with the same kind of set of questions. Uh, there's a, there's a few kind of quick fire ones for a bit of fun, and uh, and and just uh, a couple that I always ask. So, the, the the first one is, um, what is it you love about the insurance space? and why? it's the whole thing about you know technology is now going to become
1: an enabler within the insurance space right so for me it's it's an area i've had a passion about for you know like i said 14 years of doing insurance it's an area where now we can certainly start changing the business um getting involved and having a you know seat at that table it's really important right we need to evolve away from being you know the back office technology staff to being really front and center Right, and it's going to be important. And the insurtechs get it, and all the startups get it. You know, their their technology companies first, right? That's where they're starting. And there's a lot of companies within London markets where there's still maybe IT doesn't have the right level of, uh, I would say, support at the, at the top table, right? So for me, it's exciting that that hopefully is changing.
0: What's the best thing about being behind your desk right now? Uh, I've got a view of St Paul's Cathedral right there. It's
1: amazing. I love it, and I love coming into the office. So for me, I think coming back to the office, and this is a maybe contentious one, but the whole hybrid working and remote working, I'm totally for hybrid working. I think I love it. I mean, I've always done hybrid working throughout my career. I've never, I've rarely done five days in the office, to be honest. Not because I didn't want to, just because I've always, you know, there's always been things you need to do. I need to go and see my son's violin recital. I've always made sure I, I made those important things okay. Like if I, my daughter had a swimming competition. I made sure I was there for 3:30. I may be working to 9 in the evening, but I was always working and you know on an outcome-based scenario. So for me coming back into the office is really exciting. And for me I think it's the AA, you know, we have a great pedigree, a great brand, um, and there's a lot to come. So for me it's exciting being part of this journey. Nice.
0: So then are just some quick-fire questions then. What's the one piece of technology you couldn't live without? thought
1: about this because i saw that question come up earlier as i was looking at some of the other podcasts um i really enjoy my and it's a bit geeky i really enjoy my google nest thermostat because i can turn it off i can turn it off remotely when the missus is at home and she's whacked the heating up and then the worst thing was she also downloaded it onto her phone so we have this game where i'm turning it up she's turning it down remotely (laughs)
0: so the thermostat's going nuts but I, i love connected tech i think it's brilliant yeah, I, I have to admit, I, I, I moved into a new house a couple of years ago and got and got one. Um, my wife actually weirdly asked me to turn the heating on the other day and I was blew my eyes up 14 degrees outside. But anyway, that's a different story. Which brand or company do you really admire and why? I really like the companies that have been around a long time and have had
1: to reinvent themselves. And I'm thinking people like Disney, okay? You yeah. know, Coca-Cola, the AA is a great example. You know, these companies have been I've been here for a hundred plus years and you know they could have gone the way of blockbuster right but they didn't mm-hmm. they kept on reinventing themselves and that's really difficult right when you've got legacy in organizations and that's people culture technology it's hard to keep that fresh and keep it moving so you know those companies that are still doing it you know hats off to them as a startup you know there are different challenges but you don't have legacy you don't have technology debt okay it's not sitting there you know you get to start fresh in the cloud with a whole new bunch of you know virtual servers and paas and saas but if you're sitting there on a 30 year old mainframe sitting in the back end and you're trying to keep your business going you know hats off to those types of companies right
0: yeah yeah thing. no i think i see that's
1: a great one favorite business related book there's a couple there but i really like there's a book i read and i was given it the at travelers actually it was a book it was i think it was daniel pink i think his name was and it was all about it's, it's this this it had two themes in there and it was about you know what gets you to work in the morning, uh, and why do you get up, and why do you come to work? And and there were two parts. One was the pay me enough so yeah. I don't have to worry about the bills, right? And then keep me interested, okay? And I think that's my kind of motto for um, for all my 30 years of my career. I've never wanted the biggest salary. Otherwise, I would have joined the bank at 21, right? I didn't do that. I, I, I wanted just enough, okay? I was living in a you know, in a rental accommodation in Southampton, it was like just enough to pay the rent. Okay, just enough for me to go out and then keep me interested, because I've been at roles where they've paid me and I wasn't interested, and it didn't last long.
0: Favorite film or TV series? You can have one of each if you want. You yeah, have got, I've got, yeah, I've got one of each. I think
1: the one I've enjoyed lately has been The Bear. Right. Okay. What's that about? I've not heard of it. It's, okay, it's on. I think Disney. Is that a series? It's about a chef. Yeah, it's on Disney Plus. It's on it's about um, a chef in uh, Chicago. If you haven't seen it. It's called The Bear. You should watch it. It's amazing. It's uh it's good. It talks about all the challenges of, of uh of running a restaurant. It's a really like fly in the world documentary. But it's really intriguing. I enjoyed that. And then the perennial favorite, you know, one I grew up on, um, is Back to the Future. <laughs> I love nice. I love Back to the Future. I think it still holds a good story. My kids get bored of it. i make them watch it every time it's a rainy day. But um i think it's, it's a story that it's a good it's, it's a do good feel feel good film um that
0: always makes it takes me back to my uh you know michael j fox days so, yeah. yeah definitely it's so definitely still be in my top 10 as well and if you weren't a technology leader what uh, or or, or you, you hadn't gone into technology at all what would you uh, what would you think you would have done
1: i'm a social kind of person so i really would have probably just opened up like the Bear, a cafe or a restaurant i kind of kind of, nice. kind of like being front of house I'd be, i think i'd be good front of house I mean i probably wouldn't nice. cook much i probably talked talked too much but uh i would certainly enjoy socializing and maybe having a sneaky glass of wine in front of house but i can see myself in that type
0: of role i so. oh, suppose maybe yeah i was gonna say maybe maybe once the insurance and the tech stuff's done this is normally the last one but i've actually got another one for you but um, who who's your number one role model or person you admire it's been the women in my life i think i go back to my mum.
1: Um, I go back to my sister uh, I go back to my wife I think the the um, the obstacles they've had to get over to survive in this world is I think is uh, you know it's uh, something I look up to right they're role models completely they taught me a lot
0: nice and then the, the last one which uh, which uh, which I uh, haven't asked before but based on what you said earlier you went to, you, I think you said you went to 16 countries so which which one was the best okay and
1: why <laughs> I re- yeah i really enjoyed the 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 ones that are a little bit out there so we went to places like bolivia that was a little bit wild wild west i enjoyed that interesting stories in in bolivia and i I really loved new zealand actually i thought it was great i really enjoyed that we spent six weeks in a camper van as you do me and my wife, trawling through the north and south island but um it was the most well, we did it during winter so it was cold um but it was the most amazing scenery and there's not many people there. So I quite enjoyed that, uh, being quite
0: solitary in the South Island. It's good. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. You mean I've always wanted to go to South America, actually. I think that's, uh, that's definitely on my list. So, well, look, you mean that brings us to the end, Mike, I could talk to you for hours, but, uh, it is really, really, really interesting. Um, some brilliant snippets there, I think for people as well, at all, all different levels. So thank you very much for your time. Um, we really, I really appreciate it. Um, I, off the back of this, I'm sure there'll be some people that want to get in touch with you. Normally, people say LinkedIn, but like, what, is that is that the best way? Are you quite happy for people to reach out and connect and all that kind of stuff? I have a quite I have a quite a strange
1: policy on LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> you get a lot of requests, and since since I've changed my job title, it's gone through the roof nuts. To be honest, I don't link in with anybody, Mark, unless I've met them. Really? Okay. It's fair a enough. It's a rule I've had from day one. So. So what I would say to is is send me the request and then take me out for a coffee or a beer or at least do some video so I know who you are because my network is protective as in I protect my network because yeah, yeah. I kind of like to know yeah. who those people are so I've had a so my network isn't it's big but it's, I kind of know everybody on there and this goes back to connections I kind of trust those people and it's one of those things I've just stuck with over the years because it's just you know, I get, and I get all these people always saying to me, "You declined my request." I'm like, "Who are you? I don't know who you are." I feel I'm a lot about, more
0: honoured to I'm be about, connected to you now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I can't vouch. <laughs> I'm like, I can't vouch for you because someone rang me up and said, "How you know what's Mark like as a recruitment, you know, the guy?" I would go, "Well, I know Mark. I trust the guy." Whereas if someone said to me, "You know, what about so and so?" I would like, and they like, you're all connected to that person. I would, like, I don't know who they are. So for me, I've kind of kept it close, but send me a request and then uh, yeah take me out for a coffee near St Paul's and then you can be part of my network
0: yeah sounds sounds good i like that Great. Well, look, as I say, thanks, everybody, for listening. We've got loads more coming in uh, for the rest of Season 3, so please subscribe um, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, or or any of the other platforms. We're we're across most of them. Definitely give us a five-star rating, all the usual stuff. And that just brings us to the end. Look forward to to catching up with you next time. Mike, thanks very much again, and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Behind the Desk with me, Mark Thomas. If you liked the episode, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, like and a comment, and even better, please share with your friends and colleagues. If you have any suggestions for future guests or other areas you'd like me to explore, it would be great to hear them. Behind the Desk is powered by Eames Consulting, part of the Eames Group. You can find out more about us at eamesconsulting.com. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to catching up with you again next time.